All right, well, thank you, brother. Welcome. Oh, come on. Oh, no, 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 come on. Oh, welcome. Okay, good. Got some. Uh, all right. Uh, now, t- now, Chad, we had said what? You said three hours for the sermon? Okay, now, so, yeah, metric hours, right? Okay. Yeah, normally, as Chad knows, my normal sermon outline is three points, rant, rave, and review. Uh, but since I think he only said it's 45 minutes, we'll have to rant and rave for uh, 45 minutes. But, And as I told Chad, it's when I... He asked me what I was going to preach on today. It really was pretty easy because what I want to preach on is my life's verse and what I think what really drives me and really controls my ministry. And it's what I have thought about really since I've become a Christian. And by the way, I am a Christian. I do believe in Jesus Christ and he's my Lord and Savior and all that good stuff. You, you want to be careful who you put in the pulpit. So it's not mind-controlled drugs I've put on uh, Chad. But as we... The thing about this, I've thought about this a lot, and I hope you do too, because you live in the era of history that God decreed you would live in. And each era has its ups and downs. And I have noticed from the time I was really a new believer that the church is really, church history is a history of the failed institutions in Christianity. Because what you see is that God begins a work, and what happens is is that the leaders that God has appointed to protect and defend his word don't do it. They fail Christ. They fail as shepherds. They fail to protect the sheep and to protect the word of God. And what happens is, is that people who have given their lives, their fortunes, their time, their talent, their treasure to build up a particular body for the service and the glory of God is little by little and ultimately given away to Christ's enemies. All I have to mention is, look at what's happening in the Middle East right now. That was the seat of Christendom. That's where it all began. And what do you have now? you have Christianity suppressed. Look at the great denominations, the Protestant denominations. And by the way, this is a Protestant church. I'm sure Chad has reminded you of that. You think of the great Protestant denominations since the Reformation, almost all of them, when you think about the names, Presbyterian, Reform, Wesleyan, Methodist, Episcopalian. Now, there are lots of different denominations, but most of them have at some point compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've compromised the inerrancy of the word of God. And now, what do you have that masquerades as Christ's doctrine? Homosexual marriage being promoted. You have all sorts of, uh, unfortunately, things that go on in the churches in the name of Christ that God says is just putrid. And I can't, think of, I, I can't think of words strong enough to condemn it. How did that happen? And it's actually quite simple. God has entrusted faithful men to lead the church and that they need to be equipped as leaders and they need to be faithful to one thing, the word of God. Because we are not people of general revelation. We are people of the book. And any time that we stray from that, we see the institutions fall. I'll bet some of you probably don't know that Harvard University started as a Puritan seminary. I'll bet you didn't know that. And how much Puritanism, godly, reformed, Calvinistic, Protestant, biblical Puritanism is left at that place? Pretty much zip. And instead, what you've got is a high trademark academic institution that is a hotbed for atheism, is a, is, a, is a hotbed for antichrist ideas that have done nothing but to use it against Christianity, Christ, and his works. And he asked, how did it happen? How did we give that stuff away? And the answer is, is that leaders cared more about pleasing men than pleasing God. They cared more about being smart people and being accepted in the worldly academic community than doing what? Being fools for Christ. Preaching the word of God, no matter what it says, whether or not the smart people, the wise of the world, think it's, think it's good or not, think it's acceptable or not. 
So that's how we little by little give away our institutions. So my question to you this morning, besides the fact that I'm looking at Chad, and I know he'll, uh, uh, he's the, the shepherd, one of the, the, the chief shepherd of this congregation, I'm here because I know Chad and I trust him. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, apart from aliens controlling his mind, uh, probably you're going you're gonna to be doing okay. And my mind control drugs wearing off uh, that he'll go off the deep end. Uh, you're probably not going to have a problem here. But so there, th- that's how, that's, initially that's how we set up. That's how churches go bad. That's how church institutions go bad. The problem is we, we've handed over trillions of dollars of assets to be used against the work of Christ. How do you maintain the purity of devotion to Christ? How do you do that? And the answer is, is maintain fervency for the word of God. Not only in the leadership, but I want to ask you this question. I want you to reflect on this. If someone asked you if you were an atheist or a pagan, what would your answer be? Now, this is assuming here all of you make professions of uh, Christianity here today. But assuming that, you want to ask the question, do you, what is an atheist? Well, there are different kinds of atheists. They're what they call traditional dogmatic atheists. And what do they do? They explicitly say there is no God. Okay? There is not now, never has been, never will be a God. Okay? That's a traditional dogmatic atheist. Now, of course, the problem is there are logical problems with that, so you have defensive atheists as well. What does that mean? It means... Really, we're agnostics. We're not sure whether there's a God, but we like the term atheist because it fits better working in the secular university. So we want to be atheists. That's all fine, but there's a third kind, and this is the kind that's often found in the church. Are you a practical atheist? Do you say you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and Savior, but you live as if God doesn't exist? The second you walk out of here, your conscience is gone, you go on, you put in your hour or hour and a half a week, and then you go and live as if God is not the supreme commander of the universe and Jesus is not kurios. That's one. Because that's something, when, when you stand before God and you go to the Bema seat, is it going to be, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or is it going to be, like he's going to say to me, oh, it's you, all right, come in, say something like that. Probably, I mean, two, Paganism. What's the ultimate problem with paganism, occultism? Why does the Bible single out rebellion is of the sin of witchcraft? Okay, in 1 Samuel. Answer, because the occult and occult practitioners explicitly don't want to submit to anybody, especially a god. They want to find secret knowledge and secret power so I can accomplish my will in the external world. Forget repenting. Forget submitting to an authority's will. No, it's my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the question, just like atheism, is do you become a practical pagan, a practical occultist? Because what you're really doing is saying my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but you're calling it Christianity. Okay? And this is the kind of thing that always kills the church. It kills your life. It kills your witness. And this, this is nothing new. The fact is, you look at biblical history, Adam and Eve started out where? In paradise. And how long did that last? Well, who knows? The Bible doesn't give us clues to exactly how long they remained in Eden. But we know for a fact that they gave it up. They decided they wanted to do their own thing. What happened with Noah? What happened with Abraham? fact is eventually all the groups and uh, people that were founded they gave it up now what's the result of all this it's always the judgment of god god we as i think it was walter martin said summarizing the entire bible's teaching on this nobody's getting away with nothing no how okay that should be the motto for your life and at the same time do you really believe in the doctrine of divine justice, and this, this is your homework assignment, go to the end of the book of Revelation and read it and decide, is there really a lake of fire which all those who are not found in Christ will go? And is there really a new heaven and a new earth? Do you live as if God is real, that he's holy, that he's just, 
And as his people, you have duties to obey him. Now, those are the practical questions I want you to think about as we consider today's material, because it really does start with the leadership. And so now where do we turn to for understanding what the job of the leadership is? And the answer is in the New Testament, the pastoral epistles. And in the pastoral epistles, particularly, 2 Timothy was arguably the last book that Paul ever wrote. He wrote about a third of the New Testament. 2 Timothy, arguably, is he knew this was the last one he was going to write. He wrote it from the Mamertine prison in Rome. What was the Mamertine prison? It was a dungeon where people had to lower down their food, their clothing. They literally had a, a, a hole in the ceiling. They, they lowered down a rope with provisions on it. Generally, kinsmen, family members had to come in and take care of their, their people who were in jail. What was Paul thinking about in jail? You know, was, was he thinking about, well, how can I get my lawyer to get out and get an ankle brace on so I can go work, you know, send it, serve my sentence at home? I don't think he was thinking about that. I don't think that was an option in the first century in the Roman system. Instead, what we see in 2 Timothy is often called Paul's swan song. What he does is he summarizes an entire lifetime of ministry. And in the last chapter of the last book that he ever wrote, what, what, what was he thinking? What, he, what did he think was most important? And I will ask you, and I, I think you'll agree with this, if you knew you had a short amount of time to live, or at least you believe that sincerely, what would you focus on, trivial things or the most important things? If you're in your hospital bed... And you know you're dying. You've got a short amount of time left. Your family's around you. Are you going to ask what the sports scores are? Now, you're going to do one thing. Do you know that I love you, and do I know that you love me? That's what everybody wants to know, the most important things. Paul, in his apostolic ministry, in his long ministry of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, particularly those who would carry on the work, the last chapter... This is what he says. Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through eight. And these are really, this is my life's verses here. Okay. This is what has driven me since I can remember being a Christian. Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. <clears throat> In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, this is his final words. What is it? Preach the word. Was this opinion? Now, the very words itself, and I'll give you some Greek here, dia marturomai is how it starts. I solemnly charge you. This was a military term that uh, generals gave to the soldiers. It was a command. It was not an option. And, of course, we see the introduction to this. We look at 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. Uh, what's the introductory clause or phrase that goes into chapter 4? Verse 16 of chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And what does he want Timothy to do? Preach the word. Because it's the scripture that comes from God. It's the scripture that's the expressed propositional will of God. It is the scripture that contains all we need for salvation. 
I'll tell you that the sad part that happens in the church is when you have the rise of natural theology and general revelation. Some of you may not be familiar with those terms, but the Bible is generally referred to theologically as special revelation. It is God's explicit word-by-word propositional revelation that gives us all that we need to know to know him, to obey him, and for salvation. What's general revelation? All that means is the knowledge one can obtain from God in the creation itself through reason and from drawing inferences from it. Now, what do you get from knowledge of God in creation? Okay. And the problem is this is what happens in Christian philosophical programs, apologetics programs, when they're detached from theology and biblical studies. What we want to do is be able to prove to people without the Bible all sorts of things, like we can have knowledge that God exists, that there's a natural moral law, and all of those have their place. But what, can you, what, is, the, what is it maximally that you can know from creation? Answer, that God exists. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 tells us that. Kalam cosmological arguments tell us that. Teleological or design arguments tell us that. Great, God exists. And if you believe that, you're right where the demons are at. James 2.19, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe that and tremble. So, so much for, quote, believing in the existence of God. That's just not sufficient. Same thing we get to Romans 2. Do, do, does everybody, what else do we know about God from creation? Answer, what? We, we ought to do the right thing. We ought to be moral. In fact, if you want to look at what all the world religions are, I'll save you a degree in comparative religion. They all believe that you can save yourself by doing enough good works. Okay? What does that mean? They took what they, what they know in their conscience and made a religion out of it. But the, but the way it always comes out is I can do enough good works to make up for my bad works. Okay? But what does the Bible say? By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That's the reality behind it. So what can you know from general revelation? You can know God exists and you ought to be good. But what do you do for your guilty conscience? Well, you can continue to have a guilty conscience and pretend that you're going to save yourself and you're going to satisfy the God of creation by simply doing what you ought to have done in the first place. And the fact is, it doesn't work. What you need is grace. And that's what comes through the word of God. That's why there is no other way under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except for what? The death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we look at Paul's preaching that we preach the word of God, this is where we find the gospel, the good news. We don't find it in the trees, the flowers, the chirping birds, the bunnies, the rainbows, or or the, the stars in heaven. All you get from that is condemnation, so that they are without excuse. So what about those who have never heard? The fact is they have heard. They've heard the command of God to obey his moral law, and they chose to disobey. That's what happens to those who have, quote, never heard the gospel, close quote, is that they are without excuse. So Paul goes on to say here, what is the remedy for that? And by the way, don't preach your own thoughts. Don't preach the L.A. Times. Uh, Don't preach uh, the latest philosophical speculations that occur in the university. Preach the word. Okay. Now, of course, the word of God from Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. That's what pierces asunder as a divisions between what? Joints and marrow, soul and spirit. If you want effective preaching, the Bible itself says you got to preach the will of, uh, you got to preach the will of God through the word of God. Now I just and again, because one thing I do at Biola is I teach classes on cults. I teach classes on the occult. Uh, and unfortunately, looking at heresies, false religions, and you know how they all go bad? They get away from the Word of God, period. And how is that done? It's as simple as I've got the Word of God plus something else. Word of God plus my latest Chuck Swindoll book, okay? which at that point is probably okay because they're compatible, but you've established a methodology. It has to be word of God plus some other equal authority. There is no other equal authority that we have. The problem is is when you've got the will of God plus Plato, 
you've got the will of God now, or the word of God, plus Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, who is supposedly equal in authority. Then you have a conflict. And what happens? About, last count, about 13 million bicycles roaming the earth and, uh, you know, preaching about how to become a god and all those sorts of things. So that's what happens when you deviate from the, the, the final authority of the Word of God because it's the Word of God that is alive and powerful and sharper than any, any two-edged sword. And the fact is that is the means for regeneration. It is the means for preaching the gospel. Now, what are we supposed to do? Well, other other key parts of this text is the fact is, is that Christ is coming back. There is a judgment for Christians and for unbelievers. You as disciples of Jesus Christ, what should you be doing? Answer, you should be faithfully doing the duties and fulfilling the gifts and exercising the gifts that God has given you in the appropriate context. You are the douloi. You are the servants. He is the kurios. He is the master. And Jesus, in this generation, probably more than any other generation, we have made Jesus our buddy, our friend, uh, the one who gives us gold Cadillacs and everything else if we positively confess it enough. But the idea of submitting to authority, of bowing your knee and saying, I submit to you in my heart, you are the kurios, and when my master commands me to do something, I as the servant must obey. But the fact is, and he is appearing soon to get an account for your life. Do you believe that? The fact is, is now I say appearing soon. Uh, The fact is, is that there are a lot of people that speculate on end times. The fact is, that's irrelevant. I've heard from my whole life people saying, hey, get right or get left, right? Uh, It's always better to get right than to get left, at least uh, in many ways. But uh, thank you. So did it sound that bad? Okay, good. So. Okay, thank you. Okay, all better now. <clears throat> Somewhat. All right. So, I mean, so when you think about that, get right, get left, you know, 88 reasons while the rapture will be in 1988. Yeah, right. Yeah. How, that means how many years are we into the millennium right now? The fact is that's general eschatology, trying to understand general last days events. Let me tell you what's more important, personal eschatology. That is your last day. You hear that plane coming towards the building here? Right. Think about the Twin Towers. Think about the people who were in their conferences. And all of a sudden, they instantly went from the empirical world to the spiritual world just like that, without any warning, without thinking about, I'm going to repent at the last minute. So the question is, is by his imminent appearing, well, the context here is general eschatological appearing, which is imminent. The fact is, is that we don't want to completely rely on that because your death could be imminent when God decides to take you home. So what do you need to do? Remember that and make the most of your time for the days are evil. Don't get distracted with all sorts of other projects except for that which your Lord, your master wants you to do. And what is that? Preach the word, the word of God. What is the word of God? Well, to understand what the word of God is, Uh, Again, you know, take 24 units of theology and read your whole Bible, right? Uh, But realistically, we understand what the Word of God is. You have got an eternal, infinite, self-existent, omniscient creator who has done what? Declared his ideas, his word, his logoi to us. Now, we as creatures, maybe you never thought about that, but first you want to think of yourself as a creature, Okay, And as a creature, we owe our complete existence to God. The first gift of God is not salvation. The first gift of God is existence. The fact is God did not have to make the world. He did not have to make us. So the fact that anything exists at all rather than nothing is the fact that God freely decided to make us. Every breath you take, your very existence is a gift of God. Now we've got second gifts, right? Salvation, we're adopted as children of God, we have all those things, but the fact is, is you need to think of yourself first as God's creature. The fact is, is that we are supposed, we are made by God, we're the clay, God's the potter, and the sooner we get that straight, we're going to have an attitude of submission. We're going to have an attitude of, let's see, I was made out of nothing, out of dirt, 
And, uh, and God breathed into me this little soul that has to keep, uh, you know, we keep sinning, then we keep trying to grow because of it. And then we realize what? How much you need God. How much we need to day by day, minute by minute, say, God, I must decrease and you must increase. I am the clay, you are the potter. And so once you understand that, what do you do? You seek God's instruction. The word Torah, that's normally translated law, is instruction. That's what it means. It's instruction for how we ought to live. And by the way, instruction for what? When you understand creator-creature distinctions? I'll tell you what. Uh, how many think you know what worship is? Don't raise your hands, okay? You know, obviously, everyone has an idea of what worship is. The very words for worship in the New Testament literally mean to bow down. And when you think about this, it means to acknowledge God as the greater and you in submission to God. Now, God is the greater. God is in control of the universe. And when his people stop rebelling and you're in cooperation with the right authorities and creators, what do you have? eHarmony.com, right? 29 dimensions of compatibility, lots of shalom, okay? What do you want? Peace with God, the problem is God didn't change. He's immutably holy. He's the creator, and we're the rebellious creatures. So you want worship? Acknowledge God. When you do that, submit to his will, you hear his word, his instruction to us. Guess what? That's how you all get exactly what you want in life, peace with God. And then you made in the image of God, you will be in harmony with God, the way he designed you, and the way he made creation. Now, you either believe that or you don't. Don't leave here today without making the choice and say, look, am I going to submit to God and believe his instruction or am I going to a different source? If you think if you're living life now and you still have conflict, you're unhappy, it's because somehow you are not in complete submission to your creator and that when you are happy and satisfied doing the will of God, that's when you know you say, now I can say I, I'm, I'm walking in the spirit. I'm walking as a disciple ought to walk. But if not, there's, you have some areas of compatibility. There's no eHarmony.com. That's eternal harmony with God, right? Uh, all that means is there's a reason why you feel conflict. There's a w reason why you're depressed. There's a reason why you're not happy. It's because you, you failed to realize some of these truths. So it is the word of God that God has given us to fix us, to help us, to move us along. Now, just as a short apologetic for the Bible, preach the word, the scriptures. Now, if someone asked you, why should we expect something like the Bible? What would you say? Now, here's what you would say as far as uh, preaching the, what should we expect as something like the Bible from God? Think about this. Get an idea of what a good person is, okay? A good person with children. How many of you here, here have children? Okay, good. Uh, now, you think about this. Would a good parent ever have children and then abandon them, never give them instruction, never mentor them, and you're shaking your head. Go. What do we call people like that? Yeah, don't mention it, right? Uh, the people who would have children, abandon them, never give them instruction for righteous living. Is that a good parent? And the answer would be no. So for God to make us in his image with the intent to have fellowship with us and never instruct us on the way we ought to go, what kind of being would God be? He wouldn't be what we think of as a good person. So what do we expect from God? He made us. And we could expect that at some point he's going to communicate with us and give us everything we need to know. Now, we know there's only one God, so that narrows it down to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as formal monotheistic religions. Okay? And Judaism is incomplete in its biblical forms, doesn't have the New Testament. And Islam says that the Bible's corrupt, can't rely on it, we need new scriptures. So what are you left with? Biblical Christianity, Old and New Testament. And that's what we can expect from God. That's just quickly, as so we think about preaching the word, why we should expect something like the word of God. Okay? It's something like that. So preach the word. When? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. The fact is God didn't tell you to do this when it's convenient. As servants... Whether it's a good time or a bad time, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, 
What are you supposed to do? Preach his word. So what does that mean? You get a call in the middle of dinner. Somebody needs help. They need counseling and application of the word of God. You make time for them whether it's convenient or whether it's inconvenient. The fact is there are too many people waiting for a convenient moment to serve God. And again, I don't know all of you or your lives, but I know this is somewhat endemic uh, in the Christian church. Everybody's waiting to serve, waiting for the right time, waiting waiting for the, uh, like I said, the exact good time to serve. No, we do it when God gives us the opportunity, whether it's a good time or a bad time, whether it's convenient or or inconvenient. Then we turn to how do we do it? What are the specifics here? Okay. Now I say this because in this generation of Christians, nobody likes anything negative. Okay. You're not supposed to say anything negative to people, right? Because you're going to hurt their self-esteem. Unfortunately, I've, as my friends tell me, I'm the king of negative. Okay. Uh, and of course, that's because I have the gift of criticism and everything else. It's a, it's a uh, you know, unknown... Uh, yeah, which, by the way, don't, don't go into that. Titus 1.9 says very clearly, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. When I started doing my apologetics, polemical theology ministry, the problem is I spent almost all my time doing polemic and doing negative stuff. That's bad for the soul, okay? Do about 90% exhort in sound doctrine and about 10% refute those who contradict. That's the best balance. Because if you do it the other way around, you'll lose all your friends, okay? Uh, you become a negative, uh, very negative person, and uh, I can say that I have good friends that corrected me on those things over the years. Uh, so now I'm about 1% better, but uh, we'll see. Uh, see how that is. But on the other hand, the Bible is quite clear that we need to refute those who contradict. All the problems that we have in this life start with lies. And you should make a note of that. It's lies that hurt us. How did, how did the human race fall? Because you had a persuasive liar in the Garden of Eden that per- persuaded Eve ultimately to believe something that was not true. And because she committed to that, believing what? That this would make me better, this would make me happier. Uh, in the end, didn't make anybody happier. Why do you do everything that you do? Answer, because you think it's going to make you happy and it's going to satisfy you. And then why do you sin? Because you keep misidentifying what is truly good, true, and beautiful and what God has designed for us. And you think that something else other than God is going to satisfy. Don't believe lies. When people believe lies, what do we need to do? Confront the lie. And that is the method, that is the theme throughout the New Testament. Exhort in sound doctrine, refute those who contradict. How does this come out? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What's a reproof? Okay. Tell people they're doing something wrong. Okay. Uh, a rebuke. Tell them they're stop, to stop doing it. Okay. Now it goes together with what? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And then teach them and encourage them to do what's right. How? With great patience and instruction. Usually we like, you know, some of us like the confrontation part, you know, you're doing what's wrong, but we forget about restoring with a spirit of gentleness, preach the truth in love. You want to have, have a redemptive attitude with other people's betterment in mind. But what happens again, by children's analogies, what happens if you let your children go unconfronted and uncorrected? And the answer is you end up with those kids sitting at the restaurant screaming wildly and uh, making noise, right? And you're looking at each other going, oh, remember those, yeah. So uh, in fact that you get children who are undisciplined, and the fact is that you might love them, but if you don't discipline them and confront what's wrong, guess what? You're not leading them to a path of righteousness. And, of course, the Bible tells us to discipline ourselves for godliness. Do you discipline yourself? Do you do self-rebuke, self-correction? self-exhortation based on what you know of the Word of God, I I hope you do, uh, because that's what's necessary for living the Christian life. But sometimes we need uh, the preachers to come and remind us that, which reminds me of, uh, I I saw a cartoon one time, how is that done? Well, in the animal kingdom, for example, there's a cartoon of a dog preacher standing up like behind a pulpit and all a bunch of dogs in the congregation, and he has this dog preaching, he says, no, no, bad dog. Okay, that was it. 
That was supposed to be funny. I was trying. Okay, good. So uh, we'll do that. Okay, I think it's time to... No, okay, we'll... Uh, All right, so reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why all of this pressure to teach sound doctrine, to have all of you be trained in what's right? Because from the beginning, we have false teachers, false doctrine, and everything else that has come in to do what? To draw us away from God. And this is what happens when you don't love the truth. Second, uh, turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 with me. And I want you to see the practical result of what happens when people do not know and love the truth. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Second Thessalonians 2, this context is it's the Antichrist is coming. And what's going to happen, the lawless one, verse 9, that is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, and read the next line, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who do not believe in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. The fact is there are people, many people and people sitting in churches today. And, you know, if you're one of those people, do you love the truth? Do you seek what is true? Do you seek to replace? Do you acknowledge the problem that you haven't arrived yet? You don't have a perfect understanding of God in the world. And do you seek the truth and know that I probably believe some things that are wrong? Do you engage yourself in the study of the word of God? Because if you don't and you don't love the truth, you get part B of Paul and 2 Timothy. And what is that? Turn back to 2 Timothy and you find out. If you don't love the truth, number one, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, God will send upon the people a deluding influence that you might believe what is false. One of the ways he does that, look at uh, 2 Timothy, is, is this. For the time will come, verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, here's about, you know, four semesters worth of information I can give you. But what does it mean, in effect, that they will not endure sound doctrine, literally healthy teaching? Answer, I don't want to hear that I've violated the law and I'm guilty. I don't want to hear that I'm not perfect. I want to hear that I'm fine just the way I am. I don't have to grow. And it's like the people who go from church to church, counselor to counselor. I want you to tell me that God accepts me no matter what. I have no repenting and no growth to do. But you're going to tell me a way for God to make my life better. Okay. Now that comes in a variety of formats. But let me give you some of the worst kinds. Okay. One, one area, and there are better and worse forms of it, but is the word of faith teaching, the positive confession doctrine. There can't be anything worse in this area than Kenneth Copeland's teaching that we're little gods and that the purpose of life is to give you the power for you to positively confess into existence whatever you want. Health, wealth, it's all up to you. Because once you get saved, because Jesus lost his divine nature, took on Satan's nature, went to hell proper, suffered under Satan and demons for three days, and then after three days in hell was born again. So you have the born again Jesus. And since you can't keep a God man down, right, he rises from the dead. And uh, everyone who believes in Jesus, you are united to Christ by nature now, and you all become little gods. And according to Copeland, God is a man, 6'2", lives on the planet heaven and made Adam as an exact duplicate of himself. So what does that mean for you when you get saved? You can literally speak things into existence out of nothing the way God did when he created the universe, close quote. So what is it? It's all about you. And I can give you the secrets to Cadillacs, houses, wealth, health, anything you want, just follow this formula. Now, in this case, 
I'd say that's not sound doctrine. But unfortunately, this is one of the most popular teachers on the Trinity Broadcast Network. So, again, by the way, that's not the doctrine of the Trinity. It should be something else, you know, the Tritheistic Broadcast Network or whatever you want to call it. But it's not the Trinity Broadcast Network. But this is the problem of will not endure sound doctrine. When you have people who don't want to submit to the will of God and are saying, no, what am I going to get? You're going to gather unto yourselves teachers who will say what your itching ears want to hear. I don't want to hear that I still have growth in my life. I don't want to hear law preached. I don't want to hear morality preached. Why? Because it condemns me. And I don't have a confidence in the gospel that I know God has made provision for me. So the question is, do you love what's right? Are you willing to submit to the sound doctrine that produces holiness and sanctification, but yet you know while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you understand you're a child of God if you believed in Jesus Christ, you're adopted as his, as his son or daughter, and the fact is God will treat you like his child and he's our Abba, he's our daddy. Do you believe that? And you can come to your father and confess your sin. You can ask for help when you need it. Say, the person who doesn't believe that, I, I, I doubt that person is a Christian if they fear God that way still. They don't understand that they can come to God. So time will come and they will not endure sound doctrine, but want to have their ears tickled. Well, how much better than you, you, are, you, you are a God right now and can get what you want. How is this done? They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Turn the truth of God into mythology. And again, every seminary practically that has ever existed turned the truth of God into mythology. And that's how it falls. You have the leaders of the church that turn away from the Bible. They don't preach the word. How is this done? It's done in a very scholarly way. That's the problem is when you go to the university and you go to a grad school, they talk about, uh, you know, the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith, right? Classic liberalism. They'll talk about the Bible as inspired, so you don't catch on right away. But what does that mean? It means the human beings had really good insight into the, the world God made, and they came up with very interesting religious principles, okay? But is this actually unveiled from heaven, from God to us? No, no. This is all Paul's opinion. This is Peter's opinion. This is everybody else's opinion. So my, my question to you is, why should you follow Peter's opinion? And, they, and eventually it became, you don't have to. We get to the 20th century. We think about the beginnings of liberalism. We get Rudolf Bultmann, who explicitly talks about the mythology of Scripture. But at some point, we demythologize it. We strip away the myth to get to the kernel of truth within it. What's the kernel of truth? That God exists and we ought to be good. The gospel's gone. Sanctification is gone. It's all gone. And what are you left with? We move to the time of the judges again. Everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I, I, I would hope that all of you want to live the best Christian life that you can live. Because when you get to the end of your life, what is that going to mean? You're not going to want to have regrets. And I, I, I know people, when they get to the end of their lives, they say, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have loved people more. You get to, you read biographies of preachers, and what do they say? Almost to a person, they say, I wish I have studied the Word of God more. I wish I would have known more about the Word of God as I went through my life of ministry. Did you, you and your sphere of influence, did you fail to provide a good witness to your mother, to your father, to your, your uncles, your aunts, just to the people in your own sphere of influence, somebody dies. Did you say, you know what, I really didn't fight the good fight. Did you go and get the training you needed to reach people for Jesus Christ, to be good disciples? Again, and that, that's hard, but you know what, it's hard now. It's harder when you're at their funeral knowing that they died cursing Jesus Christ or died in a state of agnosticism. I've, I've been at some of those funerals. 
I've presided over some of those funerals. There is most sorrow for the Christians there knowing that a loved one has gone on and they didn't do everything they could to present a clear testimony of Jesus Christ to them and love them. And then there's plenty of regret. So the question is, is for each of you, if you know your calling, can you say this at the end of your life? Skip down to verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Can you say to yourself at the end of your life, I fought the good fight? Are you fighting it now? Or are you just fighting traffic, right? (laughs) Are you learning the faith? Are you confronting evil? Are you confronting the sin in your own life? Are you fighting the good fight? Are you finishing the course? Let me tell you that. Okay, let's say all of you are going along well now. Guess what? Daily... Minute by minute, you have to choose to, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith, okay? Let me give you a couple examples of leaders who didn't finish well. Moses and David. Think about these folks who are lifted up in the Bible as those who are, aren't these great believers, great people of God? Yes, they were. But what did David do? He sinned greatly and was not able to finish well in his kingship that God gave him. He had nothing but turmoil till the end of his life. What did Moses do? Great ministry, right? And then he got up to the very end, time to go in the promised land, struck the rock twice, disobeyed God, publicly gave a bad example. And God said, you can't go into the land. The fact is, do you have a plan for finishing well? Do you have a plan to help your kids finish well, to help your neighbors finish well, and to bring them into the faith? Because what you've got from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the creation of humanity, is you have the enemies of the faith. They're going to try and prevent you from finishing well. Now, in, uh, in, in summarizing this, I want to give you a couple of passages that kind of bring all this together. If you are not listening to and gathering under yourself people who teach sound doctrine, what's the result? Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And again, another area of reflection here. Matthew 7, 15 to 23. And think about the words and the warning that's given here. This segment, Matthew 7, 15 to 23, says this. Jesus gives a warning. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay? Now, just, have you ever thought about why does a false prophet have to come in sheep's clothing? And the answer is pretty clear because, you know, if Satan knocked on your door and said, Hi, I'm Satan. You want to worship me? Nobody would do it. Right? If those guys knocked on your door and said, Hey, you want to become a god? Nobody join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But I always come up, hey, can we rake your leaves? Hey, did you know God's a man 6'2 on the planet Kolob, and there's lots of gods, and you can be a god too? Slam. Okay. That's, that, that doesn't go over well. So that's why Satan has to appear as an angel of light. So what do you get? you got to get liberals in the pulpit using the language that we use. We believe in the divinity of Christ. Really? What does that mean? Well, it means he's a human being who had good ethics and he'd got an honorary title of divinity. Uh, What about he rose from the dead? Well, he rose in our hearts. He didn't really rise bodily from the dead. There are no miracles. You have to get past this stuff. Satan appears as an angel of light. False prophets have to put on their sheep's costumes and they're going to stand before us. Now, hopefully, and I know it would happen in this church, but there's some churches I would doubt that this would happen. What does this mean? You invite a guest speaker in to preach at your church. And let's say Chad has to be out of town. And then the the guest speaker says, well, you know, I just want you to know, I got back from the Oxford conference. And you know what? All those, that 
those really uneducated Christians, they still think Jesus is fully divine, he's eternal, second person of the Trinity. Let me enlighten you about that with the latest scholarship. And at that point, hopefully, what you'd see is the meaning of an usher ministry, okay? Uh, There is what's called the right hand of fellowship, and then there's the back end of that, the left foot of fellowship, okay? Uh, What you do is the ushers would come forth, turn off the mic, and give them the left foot of fellowship and not allow them a place to stand in a place of authoritative teaching and proclaim blasphemy against Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, all throughout church history, people have permitted that to happen because we do not police ourselves. Now, why do we do that? Well, beware of the false prophets. You have come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How will you know them? Verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, okay, so what kind of fruits does a false prophet produce? Answer is in verse 21 to 23, false disciples. Now, you notice, too, these aren't the Satanists that are out there saying, you know, gosh, those people are leaving Christianity and going to join the church of Satan. No, 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 no. They come in among us. They claim to be Christian. And they do what? They change the gospel. They change the word. They don't preach the word of God. So what's the result? And this should give you a holy fear of the Lord and some motivation for doing what the Bible says, to examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he defines that later on. What's the will of my Father who is in heaven? To believe in the one who he has sent, to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. Verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out demons. Your name performed many miracles. And you could add to that list, did we not set up the equipment at the church? And what he'll say, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, in the margins, if you've got margins, right next to these verses, scary, okay? Because what you've got going on here are people who think they're believers. And they go to Christ on the last day. They've been deceived by false prophets, teaching something other than the word of God. And they're convinced they're Christians and they're not. And what are they offering up to Christ? And all of us every day need to think about this. They are offering up what Cain offered up, their works in service to God. That is just all our righteous works are like filthy rags. I mean, we know that the Bible proclaims it, but yet we fall into the error that every false religion falls into. We have to constantly keep check on it. Legalism and self-righteous works to pay for our sins. That's just an impossibility. It can't be done. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, what do we mean by that? And I'm going to close with this, the gospel, okay? Everybody needs to hear it. I'm a firm believer in law gospel preaching. You heard that you ought to be good, and the fact is is that we don't stand up to holiness. What's the good news, and why is it that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified? What is the word of God? What does it mean to go out out in all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of Jesus, teaching them all that they need to know? Here's what it means. And I I will forever cure you of your legalism, forever cure you of your Galatian heresy, thinking you can save yourself at all, and that can be contributed by works. What is your duty to God? Answer, be holy, for I am holy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. If you've done this, you fulfill the whole law. That is your duty 24-7, as a human being, to do those things. You're God's creature. You owe a duty to do that. So how in the world can you pay for your sins? Okay, 
And this is the huge mistake. Buddhism, Hinduism, you, you, know, you name it, the cult of Christianity, they all say this. Do enough good works, you can make up for your bad works. Let me show you the absurdity of that. Let's say you're on the way to church today and you decided, you know what, I'm, I'm a little late. I'm going to run the red light. And our fine officers of the law pull you over and they say, here's your ticket. You go before the court and you say, well, I'm your honor. How do you, I plead not guilty? And they say, well, okay, well, did you run the red light? Well, well, sure I did. Well, okay, you ran the red light and I don't know, did your, did your, did your brakes fail? No, I was late for church. Okay, I, I'm missing something here. So why are you not guilty for this? Your honor, you, I got to explain this to you. Right before I went through that red light, I went through 10 green ones. See? Do you see my point? Well, and, uh, and right after that, I went through 10 green ones. I actually only went through the red lights one out of 10 times. So look at that ratio of good works to bad. And, of course, you know, the murderer, we apply that to a, you know, a felony. They say, now we have, all right, you know, your honor, yeah, I murdered three people, but look at all the other people I let live, <laughs> right? I obeyed the law all the other times with respect to Section 187 of the Penal Code. That's got to count for something. And, you know, and on the way over here, I helped that little old lady across the street, too. Now, you're laughing, but that's what every world religion teaches, is that somehow if you do enough, do what you ought to have done in the first place. You can make up for the sins, for the crimes that, that you have committed before God. And that's why by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So what is salvation? It's reconciliation with God. How do you reconcile any broken friendships? How do you, if you're, if you're mean to your wife, husbands, how do you reconcile? It's pretty easy. You say you're sorry. You admit your sin. You realize what you've done wrong. And the person you've harmed bears that burden, and they make a choice not to hold it against you. Now, that's how all forgiveness and reconciliation works. You've got somebody who is a vicarious satisfier who bears the harm of the sin and was willing not to hold it against you. What do you have to do to reconcile and have intimacy again? Admit you were wrong. Acknowledge what's righteous and what's loving. Repent. Change your mind. Confess your sin, that the other person knows that you've acknowledged the standard. And then knowing that there's a promise for reconciliation and forgiveness, you take the promise. You go up and say, honey, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And then you get the frying pan. No, not really. And then he says, okay, honey, I'm so sorry. Eharmony.com. You go out to dinner, hold hands and uh, roses, the whole thing. You're back to that. Well, guess what? That's how all relationships work. How do you get reconciled to God? God chooses to bear the burden in our place. What happens now? You need to repent, confess, and do what? Come to God and ask for the promise. The question is, have you done so or have you listened to a false prophet? Are you a practical atheist? Are you a practical pagan? Have you really at any point in your life really said, you know what? I have not committed to Jesus Christ. If you have not, now's the time to do it. Don't walk out of here without either committing for salvation or recommitting for a life of sanctification to continue to grow. If you're stagnant in your Christian life, right now make a choice to repent. We're saved unto good works. We're saved unto holiness. We're released from bondage so we can enjoy the grace of God and the fellowship of God. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I want you to think about all of us, our commitment. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we love you so much. And Lord, we simply don't deserve as sinful creatures to be in your presence. But at the same time, you have loved us so much that you are willing to bear our burden, that you sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Lord, I pray that everyone here, you would help us to keep on repenting and that we would love what is right, what is, what is good, what is true. We would love you, Lord, and seek you with all our hearts. We pray for your Holy Spirit right now to work in us, to fill us, to convict us and to move us, that we would seek you in all things. 
Lord, if there are broken relationships here in families, I pray that there would be confession and there would be forgiveness, Lord. I pray, Lord, for hurt marriages, Lord, that this is the foundation, Lord, of civilization, that our families are together, but especially your church family, that there would be no dissension here. For each person here, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, that you would give them direction and help that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we can only thank you for all eternity for adopting us as your children. We pray right now that you make it clear and evident, Lord, and just renew us in mind and heart and bring people into our lives with whom we can share the gospel. And, Lord, we can just be good ambassadors for you. So this we pray, Lord, for your glory, and we just thank you so much for choosing us. In Jesus' name, amen.